0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin as this year ends with selected programs from our archives, following yesterday's coverage of events from early in the year. Today we will cover stories from the middle of the year, then on tomorrow's program from later in the year, before special programming on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Let's start with a broadcast of background briefing from May the 1st, 2023, growing concerns at the Supreme Court's impunity from ethical norms as its credibility with the public plunges. We'll begin with hearings by the Senate Judiciary Committee to deal with the need for an ethics code of conduct at the Supreme Court after the Chairman Nick Durbin was rebuffed by Chief Justice Roberts, who declined to testify and following recent revelations of unreported favours from billionaires to Justice Thomas Gorsuch's sale of a hunting lodge to the head of a law firm with business before the court and the Chief Justice's wife's $10 million in earnings from law firms also with business before the court. We were joined by Moira Donegan, a writer-in-residence at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. whose work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum, and the Paris Review. She is a columnist at The Guardian, where her latest article was The U.S. Supreme Court's alleged ethics issues are worse than you probably realize. Then we'll go to a broadcast, of background briefing from June the 7th, 2023, evidence that it was Ukraine, not Russia, behind the sabotage of the Nord Stream gas pipelines. We began with the revelations from the Washington Post that a small group of six Ukrainian operatives blew up the Nord Stream gas pipelines which the U.S. government blamed on Russia, leading to many journalists, including myself, reporting that the Kremlin was most likely behind the sabotage. We discussed how Ukraine's military intelligence, headed by General Budanov, is striking back at Russia as Putin wantonly destroys Ukrainian cities and infrastructure. Joining us was Michael Weiss, senior correspondent for Yahoo News, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He has interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption, and exposed the Russian intelligence services' ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. And he's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture and Money, and the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Isis, Inside the Army of Terror. Then finally, we'll play a broadcast from July the 9th of 2023. Is America now divided between Team Crazy and Team Normal? With the special counsel Jack Smith looking into the December 18, 2020 White House meeting between what has been characterized as Team Crazy and Team Normal, We assess the extent to which America is now divided between Team Crazy and Team Normal, as a Trump-appointed federal judge has decided to forbid the government from interacting with social media companies based on French conspiracy theories with crackpot plaintiffs. We were joined by Ryan Cooper, Managing Editor at The American Prospect. He's the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of the new book, How are you going to pay for that? Smart answers to the dumbest questions in politics. And we discussed his latest article at the American Prospect, Trump Judge Effectively Names Himself President. And joining us now is Moira Donegan, who is a writer-in-residence at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. Her work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum, and the Paris Review. She's a columnist at The Guardian, where her latest article is, the U.S. Supreme Court's alleged ethics issues are worse than you probably realize. Welcome to Background Briefing, Moira Donegan.
1: Thanks for having me, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Moira. And Chief Justice Roberts essentially stiffed the Senate. There was a bipartisan call to have an ethics regime, at the Supreme Court, which it doesn't have when the rest of the judiciary does. But tomorrow, the Senate Judiciary Committee will be holding hearings on the Supreme Court ethics reform, or the lack thereof, and all the stories, including the stories that you've been writing, are clearly out there in the public's consciousness. So do you think that in the broadest sense, it's at least it seems clear to me, that there's been a plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court?
1: Well, Anne, you've seen the Supreme Court shift dramatically further to the right uh, than the American public really quite quickly. You know, it's always been, or for much of its history, it has been a quite conservative body, uh, not historically very comfortable with or amenable to uh, popular movements uh, for social justice or expanded democracy. Uh, But it has moved really quite dramatically to the right over the past Uh, 10 years or so, and particularly since the Trump administration uh, reshaped the court. And, you know, there was already a decline in trust in the court, a decline in the sense of the court's legitimacy. You know, the court was already uh, coming to seem in the imagination of the American public, out of touch, unduly powerful, and concerningly unaccountable to the other branches. And then the Dobbs decision uh, almost one year ago, I believe we're speaking on the one-year anniversary of the leak of the Dobbs draft opinion. Uh, and this really accelerated what was already a trend of the courts' de- de- delegitimization with more and more Americans understanding it as an organization that's you know not accountable to the other nominally co-equal branches, uh, not in touch with the American people, ideologically motivated. And now, based on these new revelations, uh, it seems more and more enthralled to the improper influence of the very wealthy.
0: So, do you think that the evidence about Justice Clarence Thomas's relationship to Harlan Crow, who is this peculiar billionaire who has a fascination for Hitler? He he has a painting signed by Hitler, along with a signed copy of Mein Kampf, and in his garden, a sculpture garden full of busts of hideous dictators. So that's all been revealed, and then now we learn that Gorsuch is sold his uh, hunting lodge to the head of a big uh, corporate law firm and that Justice Roberts's wife earned about $10 million in the last few years uh, with very big Washington law firms, some of which have dealings with the Supreme Court. Harlan Crowe himself, his real estate companies, have had dealings. They tried to stop the uh, COVID rent relief uh, program, etc. And, of course, Justice Roberts dutifully voted to strike it down so, is there an accumulation of all this stuff that's hitting them? But at the same time, Roberts' refusal smacks of a certain arrogance that, you know, these guys are in there for life. So, how much can you shame them into the recognition that they've lost credibility with the public? And we're always told that credibility is precious to them.
1: Yeah, I want to add that also there was a few months ago a corruption scandal involving Samuel Alito, whose intimate connection to a group of uh, far-right donors to the conservative legal movement uh, seems to have included, you know, allegedly leaking to them the outcome of the Hobby Lobby decision before that was made public. Uh, And, you know, there is a eroding sense of legitimacy in the court. You know, the court, um, legitimacy is supposed to be what they have, you know, they don't have a military, the way that the executive branch does, they don't have money, the way that the legislative branch does. Uh, what they have is, you know, other people's belief in their legitimacy. So as they lose, uh, you know, the pretense of being arbiters of the law and look more and more like these, you know, partisan hacks whose time uh, appears to be for sale, Uh, you know, that will erode the power of the court somewhat. But, you know, in order for that to happen, you have to have an opposition that is willing to confront the court, that is willing to, uh, you know, acknowledge the capture of the real whole federal judiciary, but in particular the Supreme Court, as a constitutional crisis. You know, there's a brewing constitutional crisis that we have on our hands. And uh, we don't seem to have right now a Democratic Party that's entirely willing uh, to confront this crisis.
0: Well, the other subject, which, you know, one of the peculiar things about American politics, Moira, is that two of the most important aspects of politics are not considered appropriate in polite company. You don't talk politics and you don't talk religion. Well, the Supreme Court has been captured by far-right Catholic ideology, the guy that chose most of these majority, this supermajority, Leonard Leo, is one of these opus day guys, and along with the Federalists and all the dark money that he's corralled, including recently one point six billion from one donor alone, what troubles me is that there's a lack of diversity given the enormous Catholic majority on the court. And two, the lack of diversity within the Catholic faith itself, having these far-right Opus Dei influence by one man who simply not just shaped the Supreme Court, but also shaped the federal judiciary, and that's Leonard Leo.
1: Yeah, there is a uh, strong presence of mom, <laughs> like religious presence uh, on the court. And, you know, I am of the opinion that I think is, like, pretty uh, foundational to a pluralist society, that, like, people of, sincere religious conviction are not a priori and capable of being neutral arbiters of the law. Uh, however, these justices have behaved in a way that, um, sort of strains that premise. So, you know, in particular, they have interpreted the first Amendment's uh, religious dictates in such a way that the free exercise clause, uh, you know, allowing individual citizens to practice their religion without, uh, you know, interference by the government has really cannibalized the separation of church and state clause, the establishment clause, uh, which would prohibit the government from establishing religion. So more and more, you have this court interpreting the free exercise protection to allow individuals to practice their faith, at least uh, if it is a a Christian faith, uh, sort of to the detriment of the rights of others and to the detriment of the functioning of the state. So you see in the um, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, the uh, like sort of kneeling coach case. Uh, the court seems poised to allow a public employee to pray in public during the ex- execution of his, uh, you know, government-funded duties and uh, at, at a school. And that case seems to um, have invited a slew of other sort of like prayer in school uh bills in the states that are now going to sort of try and push this uh attempt to you know really establish religion in public schools even further and you know i do think uh you also see in you know the court's increasing reliance on this supposed like history and tradition standard this like reversion to an imagined past as a source of legitimacy for laws that seek to uphold social hierarchies and as a Weapon against uh, you know any effort by the state to sort of mitigate or undo uh, historical hierarchies of say you know race or gender. So
0: we have a supermajority on the Supreme Court that seems to be motivated by two things: laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism. And I'm just wondering though, how do you? make the public argument given that if you, if you accept my premise that it's difficult or not acceptable in polite society to talk about religion when it seems obvious to me that there's something wrong when you've got a supermajority belonging to not just one faith but you know a, an extreme version of that one faith or at least a far-right version of that one faith you've only got one Jewish justice and one Protestant justice so is this, is this yeah, something well, I, that can be discussed? I mean, I talk about it, and I get the feeling that uh, people don't necessarily appreciate that and somehow think it's religious bigotry to talk about it. But I'm talking about, you know, just we are a multicultural, multiracial, and multireligious diverse society, but we don't have a, any diversity on the Supreme Court.
1: Well, yeah, I do think that there is a case to be made to the public, That the Supreme Court, as well as their allies in the Republican Party, are sort of, you know, they are acting in ways that are hostile to the pluralism that is essential for a democracy and also, you know, something that ordinary Americans quite value in their own lives. And, you know, these are decisions that are unpopular. These create realities that are unpopular. You know, people don't like having the Bible shoved down their throat. They like having, uh, you know, enough trust and freedom uh, to, you know, make those kinds of decisions for themselves. And to live uh, in diverse communities. So I don't think, you know, it necessarily needs to be uh, pointing to the identities of these justices to make that point. I think their actions are making that point uh, pretty clearly. And, and you know, the polls bear that out. The confidence in the court is at the lowest that it's ever been or that it has been in quite some time. And, you know, people are really um, not happy with the vision of the nation that the court is putting forward. And, you know, increasingly outraged by, you know, their um, like quite arrogant, as you pointed out, uh, sense of impunity and, and uh, invulnerability to basic checks and balances.
0: So then is the solution then, Moira, for the Democrats to win big in 2024, to take back the House, increase their lead in the Senate, get past the filibuster threshold and for Biden to win and then expand the court?
1: Well, you know, the Biden administration and the Democratic uh, leadership more broadly have been really hesitant to confront the judiciary. You saw, you know, there was like in Biden's re-announcement video that he released last week, there was like a flash of uh, a frame of him next to his uh, Supreme Court appointee Ketanji Brown Jackson. Uh, and but there wasn't, you know, there has not been from the Democrats a ton of. Um, you know, aggression or sense of urgency as the courts accumulate tremendous policymaking power for themselves, and you know, uh, scorn any attempts at oversight. So this has really quickly become a branch that is uniquely powerful, like far and away the most powerful, uh, but uniquely unaccountable, with um, no obligation. You know, that they that they seem interested in to uh, abide by an ethics code. No uh, way to force them to, you know, come and and be uh, held accountable to the Congress and no way to make them answer to the voters. So what I think we really need is a Democratic Party much more willing to be aggressive against the court, much more willing to message against the judiciary, much more willing to say, if you vote for us, we'll put in judges who aren't these crazy fringe radicals who aren't sex obsessed, who aren't going to enter into your bedroom, who aren't going to let your, you know, conservative co-worker uh, dictate your life. Uh, we are going to put in justices who abide by basic ethical standards and who, and, you know, respect pluralism and dignity.
0: And we've got somehow got to get Senator Diane Feinstein back to work, Right.
1: Yeah, you know, it's part of the uh, tragedy of this is that, you know, the Senate Judiciary Committee um, issued a request to John Roberts, as you mentioned, to ask him to come testify about these ethics concerns about the Supreme Court. He declined. Uh, And, you know, the next logical step, if we had uh, a Democratic Party willing to take it, would be to subpoena Uh, Justice Roberts and make him come. Uh, You know, you don't get to decline if there's a subpoena, but uh, that would require a majority on the Senate Judiciary Committee of Democrats to vote for that subpoena. And we don't have one right now because Senator Feinstein has been MIA.
0: Well, I'm not suggesting, more that the Democrats should talk about (laughs) stacking the court. I think that's a political loser, but it certainly seems like at the end of the day, If they can get past the filibuster threshold, it may be the only solution because they're in for life. That's uh, the way it is, right?
1: These are uh, lifetime appointments. They can only be removed if they are impeached and removed. And the way that our Congress is working right now, uh, that's not an actual option. So I think stacking the court is probably... One of the only uh, real options the Democrats have if they don't want to have this very radical uh, federal judiciary reshape American life in ways that would be unwelcome and unrecognizable.
0: I thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it, Moira.
1: Thank you, Ian.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Moira Donegan, who is a writer and resident at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. Her work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum, and the Paris Review. And she's a columnist at The Guardian, where her latest article is, The U.S. Supreme Court's Alleged Ethics Issues Are Worse Than You Probably Realize. We're going to take a brief station break and we'll be back with a broadcast and background briefing from June the 7th of 2023. Evidence that it was Ukraine, not Russia, behind the sabotage of the Nord Stream gas pipelines. <music> And joining us now is Michael Weiss, who's a senior correspondent for Yahoo News, who's reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He's interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still classified KGB training manuals reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, and broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed the Russian intelligence service's ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. He's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture and Money, and the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Weiss.
2: Happy to be back, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And what do you make of the uh, Washington Post story that came out on Tuesday, June the 6th, that uh, titled, The U.S. Had Intelligence of Detailed Ukrainian Plan to Attack Nord Stream Pipeline. The CIA learned last June via a European spy agency, that a six-person team of Ukrainian special operatives operations forces intended to sabotage the Russia to Germany natural gas project. Quite a bombshell.
2: Um, it well, yes. Although um, the the idea that Ukrainians uh, are responsible, rather than say Russia, and and certainly rather than say the United States, which was the Hearst conspiracy theory that I think has been successfully debunked with open source reporting. Um, This has been bombinating in various national security circles for months. Uh, And in Kyiv, it's almost treated as an open secret. Um, I think the the report is credible. I think it follows on other reporting that outlets such as the New York Times had done that suggests that the U.S. intelligence assessment after the fact also implicates uh, Ukrainian actors. Although one thing that I'm still slightly unsure of or skeptical about is Washington Post says that the the pre-bombing intel suggested that uh, Valery Zaluzhny, who's the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, was the architect or the mastermind, or would would have been the architect or the mastermind of such an operation, and was doing this uh, off the books, if you like. So not, not running it up the flagpole to President Zelensky. Um, information I've gathered over the last few months, albeit not, sufficient enough to do my own report, um, suggest that it probably wasn't Zeluzhny who was responsible for putting this all together. And just on the merits alone, um, Zeluzhny has been, is, a, is a deeply popular figure in Ukraine. And if you know anything about this presidential administration, particularly Zelensky's inner circle, they don't like the spotlight, the spotlight being taken off the president. And for Zeluzhny to do something like this Without a buyer leave from Zelensky, would strike me as very foolhardy and reckless on his part. Um, not to say I can entirely rule it out, but look, I mean, the the scuttlebutt is that uh, a Ukrainian citizen, quote unquote, who is very well resourced and certainly could find, if he or she so chose, um, well trained military actors, including deep sea divers and people who are familiar with the use of explosive devices um, financed this operation and that is the reason that the new york times when it reported after the fact was sort of um relaying the u.s intelligence community's assessment that they weren't sure if this was a a state-sponsored operation or something that was somewhat rogue or freelance although you can imagine i mean given the state of ukraine that it's fighting an existential war of survival. There's a great deal of of gray area between what we would consider state-sponsored and, you know, kind of individualistic or or non-state. But look, I'm not surprised by this. Uh, I kind of have been waiting for more information to come out. I mean, if you follow the German press, um, they have all but said that the German authorities who've been investigating the the bombings uh, think it it wasn't Russia, it was Ukraine. So not not terribly shocking.
0: Well, it seems like the report came from the BND, didn't it? I mean, Germany's foreign intelligence, according to the Washington Post, it's the 21-year-old airman that leaked all this information to this little chat group of teenagers that he was impressing. And the post went to one of the teenagers and actually got the document, which was a CIA document relaying uh, information that they got from a foreign service, which is, I think, most likely to right. be the BND, right?
2: No, it's not the BND. That's it's not so the right. BND? Oh. No, no. Can you tell us who it is? The Nerv- Germans did not know about this in advance um, and whether or not the information was shared with them by the foreign European service uh, that I, I i can't say i mean i i can't really disclose which service it was at the moment um but suffice it to say um these guys don't you know they they don't wing it <laughs> they they don't they don't run with um unreliable or non-credible intelligence um and the cia's response according to the washington post was the source of the information was somebody whose reliability they could not um Determined, But that doesn't mean that the European service uh, didn't find the source to be uh, maximally credible. Um, You have to keep in mind, like, you know, European services go to the Americans when not when they've got rumint or, you know, scuttlebutt or sort of idle speculation. They they go when they've got something more substantive. Uh, And and they they know that when they go, they have to stand it up Um, because, you know, the Americans are seen as, as... the big brother and within NATO and and the transatlantic community. So yeah, no. I, look, I, I know a lot of people think that this is too conspiratorial, and you know, some Ukrainians are pushing back on social media saying it's nonsense. It must have been Russia. It must have been Russia. But you know, look. Uh, one of the, the 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 kind of light motifs of this war. I was hearing the same thing about the drone strikes in Moscow, including the one that singed the the, the dome of the Kremlin, and then these attacks on apartment buildings owned or uh, inhabited by Russian intelligence officers. A lot of people say, well, it must be false flag. It must be the Russians blowing their own stuff up in order to blame it on the United States or the Ukrainians. And I think that actually does a disservice to Ukraine's capability. Um, I mean, sure. I've been talking to U- Ukrainian military intelligence for, from even before the start of the war uh, my relationship with them is, is, is brokered on the fact that I'm writing a book on their Russian counterpart. And so, you know, I've been querying them for the better part of five or six years about how the GRU, Russian military intelligence, flies its trade. And I mean, these guys had told me several months ago, we've recruited Russian partisans who are capable of conducting operations inside Russian Federation territory. Uh, these partisans are able to launch drones from within Russia at Russian targets. So the idea that, you know, drones can't fly from Ukraine to Russia, this is all nonsense. First of all, they can. And secondly, they don't necessarily have to because they can be launched inside Russia. Uh, and, you know, blowing up Nord Stream pipeline is is well within Ukra- what Ukraine would consider to be its own strategic remit. I mean, Russia does not use energy and the export of, of, of hydrocarbons, um, Simply for uh, economic gain, they, they use it as a, as a weapon, it's a, an arm of their defense and foreign policy. So to cripple that, or to hobble it in some way, is is certainly something that the Ukrainians would have the intention of doing.
0: No, I think you're, you're talking about Bonanov, and, and I think he's yes. <laughs> the guy so who I
2: interviewed about, uh, what, a month and a half ago,
0: yeah. Right, and I think he's been behind on all these operations, and the guy's obviously brilliant and very effective. But going back to the BND, I mean, the whole reason why I think the the White House told the press, and told everybody, or suggested that it was the Russians all along, and that's been the line that we've all sort of fallen for. I don't know about you, but I've accepted that, which I now regret, of course. And the reasoning was, of course, that they didn't want to upset the German public and uh, have them mad yeah. at Zelensky for his people blowing up the gas pipeline, which means that the German people had to freeze during the winter, right?
2: Yeah, and I mean, look, you know, put put on your um, your your deeply cynical geopolitical skullduggery hat for a moment, if you will. I mean, uh, what happened... Uh, since the Nord Stream pipelines were were, were blown up. Uh, The Germans got to yes on sending or allowing to be sent main battle tanks, the Leopard 2s. That was not an easy lift, particularly for the United States State Department and Pentagon, which had been prevailing upon Olaf Scholz to do exactly that. They've been sending enormously sophisticated kit, particularly in the realm of air defense systems, the Iris T, the Gepard. On paper, actually, and and, and the fact that this isn't more widely known internationally is simply the fault of German strategic communications or public relations. But on paper, I think the Germans um, have, depending on how you calculate it, uh, overtaken the U.K. for security assistance to Ukraine. And yet, politically, they were seen as a very weak link. Um, You know, they're coming off of, uh, you know, decades of Ostpolitik, um, not neutrality per se, but this idea that you can you can sort of strike a bargain with the Russians, um, you know, um, good relations through trade or commerce or whatever it's called. And
1: Wandel all of a sudden...
2: Either, yeah. Yes. And then on the eve of the war, you have, or I think actually right after the, the full-scale invasion, February 24th, 2022, you have Schultz's famous Zeitenwende Speech in the Bundestag, where he says that, you know, now is the time that we have to kind of go 180 degrees from where we have been. So it's it's been... It's been a slow. Well, actually, no, it's been a very quick learning curve, but a painful one. And I think what's what's happened here is there were bits and bobs of credible intelligence both before and after the fact about who done it on Nord Stream 2. Uh, And the Germans themselves probably, meaning the government, had a a vested interest not to upset the apple cart by coming out, you know, full throttle and and blaming the Ukrainians. And I think there is, as I said earlier, a great deal of ambiguity as to, well, can we blame the Ukrainian state for this? Or are there certain vested interests who might not have had an interest in running this by Volodymyr Zelensky? I mean, look, this is I'm going to disclose what the Ukrainians in Kiev have all been saying. So uh, I'm not I'm not owning this as my own reporting and I'm certainly not owning this as established fact. But the scuttlebutt is that Petro Poroshenko, the former president of Ukraine, is the mysterious financier or architect of this operation. And I've been waiting for somebody in the Western press to realize that the date that Nord Stream 2 blew up, September the 26th, happens to be Poroshenko's birthday. Whether that's a coincidence or, you know, a, a kind of a honorarium to him, if you like, it remains to be seen. But I'm not saying that, that he's the guy who did it, but if it is true. Then this ambiguity it makes a lot more sense. Right. Keep in mind, before the start of this war, Zelensky was nearly putting Poroshenko in prison on very spurious charges of treason and, and all the rest of it. I mean, they are they were rivals in the political contest for the presidency, but they, they really don't like each other and their factions uh, hate each other. So if if that is the case, then I am almost willing to put $100 on the table that Zelensky would not have allowed it because he doesn't want um, his enemy to to, to be a hero and a patriot domestically. Um, So there there are a lot of question marks surrounding this. But, you know, I am very much of the belief that the thrust of the Washington Post piece is is correct. I, I do think Ukrainian actors are responsible for this. And I don't think, by the way, that that's going to go down so badly in Ukraine, or frankly elsewhere. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it would have been different if it had come out very much, well, you know, within days or weeks of the operation. But now we're coming up on many months. Um, what the Russians have got up to since seems to have eclipsed uh, any kind of diplomatic geopolitical kerfuffle caused by, by the way, a pipeline that was already essentially dead in the water, no pun intended, um, because of the war. And, you know, the one thing I would say is the timing of this disclosure is a little bit unfortunate because it happened on the day that the Karkovka Dam in Kherson uh, blew up or was blown up. And already I'm seeing a lot of people, including Tucker Carlson on his new minted Twitter show, suggest that that was a Ukrainian sabotage operation and not what all the reporting I've done and what has eked out in the last 36 hours strongly suggests which is that it was a Russian sabotage
0: operation well, well the Russians control so, the dam don't they
2: the Russians control the dam the New York Times did a very good uh, albeit speculative piece querying structural engineers who say that it looks certainly looks to them the more plausible explanation is a bomb that was set off from inside the dam well there's only one at one Group of people who kind of done that. The Ukrainians came out. Um, the, the, the chairman of their security council, Oleksiy uh, Danilov, said it was the 205th uh, motorized rifle brigade that was responsible. What's interesting about that is, I think in October, that brigade or somebody who was part of it, who has a Telegram channel, a social media platform, uh, was essentially saying, "We have mined and undermined the dam." and issuing instructions to the residents of Kherson on what to do if the dam should, quote, fail. So you know, there's plenty of there there. And, you know, right now you're in, we're in this sort of abstracted moment of, well, qui bono, why would the Russians do this? Some of their troops got washed away. Their kit has been mm-hmm. submerged, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the explanation to my mind is, one, um, it's the counteroffensive which has begun, according to U.S. intelligence assessments. David Ignatius in the Washington Post wrote a column about this. Uh, If it's been successful so far, and and according to Ignatius, the Ukrainians have managed to claw back between 5 and 10 kilometers of territory all across the contact line. They have yet again defied expectations and the odds given to them by the Americans. Um, If the Russians, and, and here's something I can simply state because I was witnessing it in real time, Russian military bloggers and observers on social media in the last several days have been in a state of utter panic uh, and 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 confusion and paranoia mixed with hubris and bombast and all the rest of it. That indicates to me that they've been getting it handed to them. And what's something that can be done that would A, uh, discombobulate the Ukrainians, B, sap their resources, and C, distract international attention from yet another Russian military failure? Well, a disaster such as flooding hundreds of, if not thousands, of of square miles of of territory by blowing up a dam, well within their capability and their ken and willingness to do such a thing. They've done it before.
0: Well, I thank you for joining us, Michael. I must say, you know, I I hate being duped by government propaganda, particularly when it comes from your own government. (laughs) But... Yeah, well, I mean, you know, a- welcome
2: to the club. Look, I've, I've <laughs> been told no so many times from U.S. sources about things that I know to be true that, um, you know, right. yeah, it, it is what it is. You, you kind of, and, and, and sometimes it doesn't, you know, I understand the impulse in, in moments of, shall we say, moral clarity, such as this war. I right. think, broadly speaking, most Americans, most international observers are solidly on Ukraine's side. But, mm-hmm. you know, truth, facts, they matter. And if it doesn't make your side necessarily look great, in in the moment, you have to take that into consideration. Yeah. Right. But exactly. as I say, I don't think the Ukrainians come off looking so badly in the rearview mirror. I think a lot of people will have said hats off to them. I mean, they're, they're, they're mm. fighting, as I say, war of, of survival and they have all means at their disposal and they're going to do what they need to do. I mean, you, you mentioned Budanov. He mm. said to me in Kiev just a few weeks ago, causing a diplomatic stir, as I've now found out. He says, we've been killing Russians and we will continue to kill Russians anywhere on the planet so long as they occupy our territory. Uh, it doesn't get more plangently stated than that. you know.
0: <laughs> That's for sure. Right. Yeah. Well, Michael, I, I really appreciate you joining us here today. Very much. Sure. All the best. Anytime. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. We're going to take a pre-station break. We're back with a broadcaster background briefing from July the 9th, 2023. Is America now divided between Team Crazy and Team Normal. I'm a ski-walking cheater with a hat full of napalm. I'm a runaway son of a nuclear aid bound. I am a world's forgotten boy, the one who searches
1: and destroys. For the guy to help please.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ryan Cooper, the managing editor of The American Prospect and the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of a number of books, including How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest article at The American Prospect is, Trump Judge Effectively Names Himself President. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ryan Cooper. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Ryan. And there's a lot of focus now, of course, on the crazy December 18, 2020 meeting in the White House with uh, what's been described as, on the one side, Team Crazy and the other side, Team Normal, where Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, General Mike Flynn uh, were all screaming at the White House lawyers who were Team Normal about all kinds of crazy plans of military coups, etc. And so, in a way... Do you think that America could be divided into Team Crazy and Team Normal?
3: Um, yeah, I certainly think you could. Uh, you know, it, it would be, as you say, a sort of uh, cross-partisan difference there because there are a number of Republicans who, I don't know if you could necessarily call them on Team Normal, but at least they're sort of like within spitting distance of it and then you have the hardcore of the Republican base, which is just absolutely out of its mind. Um, and yeah, you know, the Marjorie Taylor greens, the, these are people who are, are deep in the well of utterly unhinged conspiracy theory, paranoia, and willing to do anything to seize, you know, dictatorial powers for their, their movement, you know, God, Emperor Trump. And, uh, yeah the i guess thankful think we should be thankful uh, to some degree that there were still a few people left in the republican party who were not willing to just like do a straight-up military coup um back then
0: well apparently special counsel jack smith's looking into this meeting and a lot of the punditry seem to think it's a key it's likely to lead to some kind of indictment but in any case Trump is the head of the Republican Party, clearly, and he's the Republican frontrunner. So he's like the leader of Team Crazy because he is crazy. He's dangerous, he's reckless, he's stupid, he's ignorant, he's sadistic, he's petulant, he's childlike, I could yep. go on. That's the part that I don't understand. And now you've written about a federal judge who has bought into some of this kind of QAnon type craziness. We're talking about Louisiana District Court Judge Terry Doherty, uh, who issued a temporary injunction prohibiting federal agencies, including the FBI, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Census Bureau, the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and many others, from even talking to social media companies with the purpose of, quote, urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing in any manner the removal, deletion, suppression, or reduction of content containing protected free speech. So this is this bizarre, uh, right-wing lunatic fringe notion that somehow social media is suppressing right-wing speech. Haven't they heard that Elon Musk has taken over Twitter? What, what's going on here?
3: That, that was a kind of funny subtext to the, the complaint. You know, they named all these instances and then Biden and like Merrick Garland are the defendants, but a lot of them happened under Trump. The things they're descri- describing, um, but yeah, you know this is, as you say, this this conspiracy theory that that the government is working to, uh, you know, working hand in glove with the management of social media companies to suppress conservative speech. You know, whenever your uh, grandkids won't speak to you anymore, that's because the FBI has, uh, you know, they've done d- deep state operations on your grandkids and and that's why they can't see your emails or your facebook posts um and that's why your your posts you know on twitter pre-elon musk never got any retweets it was because the algorithm you're being shadow banned man and this this lawsuit basically buys into that whole thing a whole narrative hook line and sinker you know the government did uh prior to the run-up of the election you know, they, they would just do what anybody on 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 Twitter or any other, you know, these social media sites would do, which is flag posts, and then sometimes they would email people, you know, you click the button that's like report this post to Twitter that it violates Twitter's terms of service, which you know it's a private company, it can have them. Um and among those, you know, probably the most important one was misinformation about the pandemic or the COVID vaccines. These were the things that well, they were most concerned about. That and latterly you know, attempts to, to uh, influence the election through, you know, illegal misinformation about when the election happens. You know, that can be potentially a violation of people's civil rights. Um, but, you know, the, in the vast majority of his cases, which are only a few thousand of them, the Twitter and uh, the other companies, they, they left them up. You know, uh, Trump only got banned after he did January 6th. Um, and so, yeah, this this whole narrative is completely insane. And uh, it's quite disturbing, you know, that if that a federal judge feels himself entitled to just say, all right, big chunks of the government. You can't talk to these companies anymore about like getting rid of, you know, misinformation about the deadly pandemic. You know, you can't even talk. You can't even mention it. You can't discuss it at all. It's like, who are you to make this decision, buddy?
0: Right. Well, M- Musk, of course, started this whole lunatic conspiracy theory, saying that the previous owners of. Twitter had somehow were guilty and he supposedly provided information to uh, this character, Matt Taibbi, who's one of the main influencers of, of Seymour Hirsch. You know, he, he he told Cy Hirsch how much money he was making out of his Substack page and Hirsch should do the same, write a Substack. So Hirsch goes out and writes this ridiculous conspiracy theory about the US government blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline when it's pretty clear that the Ukrainians did it for obvious reasons. But that one of the lunatics, the MAGA lunatics in the House, his government oversight committee had a hearing, didn't they, at which Taibbi and the other witnesses made absolutely no sense that they had the forum to produce this conspiracy theory about Hunter Biden's laptop being suppressed or information about being suppressed. And... They didn't deliver the goods. And in fact, uh, Comer is, who was going to deliver the goods with a f- key witness that suddenly disappeared. I mean, it, it's just farcical.
3: Yeah, the whole thing, you know, it's like w- when he, Taibi was before Congress, you know, he made like a couple of elementary errors. You know, he mixed up the, the um, you know, Center for Election Security with like the cyber s- Cybersecurity, I forget the name of the agency, but the, but basically mixed up a, an actual government department in the Department of Homeland Security and the a private nonprofit that, like, studies this type of stuff. And you have basically this collection of agencies that do, you know, frankly, fairly half-hearted work around trying to, like, s- study, like, how misinformation happens on these platforms. And they're just blowing it all out of proportion with this, like, spooky narrative. Oh, leaked leaked information that we got from twitter you know straight from the horse's mouth look at it and it's just like there's nothing there you know the 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 story doesn't hold up but you you know you sort of like take things out of context blow them out of proportion and exaggerate stuff and then ignore the fact that like the last president tried to overthrow the government isn't it legitimate to like do something about this sort of election misinformation isn't there more important things than like the fbi talking to twitter um You know, the like fascist demagogue who's trying to destroy the Constitution and make himself dictator for life. That would seem to be like more important than this. But no, now it's dogma on the right. They're going to be talking about this forever.
0: So it is laughable. And, we, you know, we started out with the dichotomy of America being between team crazy and team normal. And we don't know what the numbers are. We don't know how many people support Trump. And whether or not he could be reelected president, so you know, Team Normal has got to get their act together, don't you think? Oh yeah,
3: absolutely. Um, you know, I think this it's it's going to be a political question. You know, I don't think that um, Biden is going to be guaranteed victory. You know, his uh, approval rating is quite low, um, especially compared to where it was in twenty twenty when he was popular. Um, but yeah, you know, I I think you, you look at in 2022, uh, basically the mood of the country, I think it's fair to conclude is that the average, the median voter is sick of team crazy. They're sick of the abortion nonsense. They're sick of people like, you know, to suppress this trans children, we're going to put in like government genital inspectors at every public restroom, you know, like, people are sick of hearing about this nonsense about the propaganda and the hysterical shouting all the time and the really unpleasant people at school board meetings, like like just enough of that stuff. People would like to just, you know, go to the football game, you know, and have a beer and, and not, uh, have people screaming about like, you know, imaginary satanic pedophiles. Um, and you know, The only way uh, to get to that situation is to is to defeat the the lunatics. And, you know, if I were to guess, I would say the real hardcore is uh, about 30 percent of the population. But, uh, you know, Trump uh, eked out a victory in 2016. He got really close in 2020. So it's definitely not uh, taken for granted.
0: But the the means by which conspiracy and stupidity and and all of this crazy stuff is being transmitted it's largely social media and i just wonder where you know maybe this new uh, threads zuckerberg's launching which has already gotten about 100 million users in a few days so it could really challenge twitter that might be a really good thing but uh, in general i just don't know what plans there are to kind of go after the this sort of sewer of trolling and right-wing disinformation. I mean, one of the examples, in fact, there's a good article by Amanda Marcotte at Salon on this Erica Marsh story, which is the right-wing made up this left-wing blogger called Erica Marsh, the hot girl at the Resistance tweeter. And, you know, they <laughs> they portray portray her or, or she's offering up all of these sort of airhead snowflake Liberal memes and it's all made up by right wing troll, but it sort of does two things. It makes the left look like snowflakes, as they as the right likes to call them. At the same time, it riles up the right wingers who can't stand Erica Marsh, even though she's an invented character. But I was very struck by the last paragraph of Amanda's article. She said, "For MAGA Trump conservatives, quote, it's not even really so much about lying as it is." waging war on the concept of truth itself. The goal isn't to fool people so much as it is to deprive truth of all social value. They want a world where what they want to believe is true and what is actually true is not relevant." And that's very similar to Peter Pomerantsev's uh, analysis of how Putin has taken over the the minds of Russians and uh, the information space. He wrote a book called um, nothing is true and everything is possible is that where we're heading or is that what we've become
3: i think it's certainly a possibility you know you you're right to say that i think maybe sort of subconsciously even that this is sort of the goal of the right-wing media complex to just like clog up everything with all these shouting narratives just people throw their hands up like, I don't know what anything is about anymore. There's no consensus reality. I just I don't care. I don't want to hear about it. Um, And, yeah, you know, one of the really unfortunate things about Elon Musk taking over Twitter is that prior to that, prior to him buying it, Twitter was one of the better places about dealing with this type of misinformation. You know, they had banned a bunch of the worst anti-vaccine conspiracy theorists. And of course, when Musk bought it, he brought them all back, all the like, you know, Nazis, some of them temporarily like, like Kanye West. Uh, and, you know, with, with Facebook, is was w- much worse than, than Twitter uh, pre-Musk. And, you know, you can see on that new Threads app, all the right wingers are going over there, testing the boundaries, you know, to how they could say slurs by like uh, doing an accurate acrostic across multiple posts um you know or putting like uh, asterisks in there and i don't have any confidence in mark zuckerberg he doesn't care about anything you know the man is he's like a a robot and so you know maybe the best possible situation is that none of it works like like to just social media just kind of collapses in popularity and influence and people go back to a much more fragmented inter- internet that you that I, frankly, much preferred, uh, just speaking personally, has it existed before the dominance of these huge platforms? You know, Facebook is largely a ghost town when it comes to anybody under, like, 45. Um, And, you know, if Twitter dies and it seems to be dying, um, you know, maybe we need to go back to, like, some more personal, you know, blogs and websites and stuff like that, and that would maybe allow us to, you know, develop a, a different... You know make it harder at least for just utter lies and insanity to spread at hyper velocity through the the algorithmic uh propagation of content but you just have to see how this sort of like battle shakes out in the in the platform space
0: but this war being waged on the concept of truth itself by right-wingists and fascists who are much more active in the in the information space and in social media it lays the groundwork for a fascist takeover. That's what happened in Russia with Putin's takeover. And yep. it's not in any way harmless. I mean, this no, this, no, no. this is Trump's, he's laying the groundwork. And the only truth is him. And uh, he's the I, savior. He's both the, the arsonist and the, and the fire brigade.
3: Yeah, I, I think, you yeah, know, I absolutely agree that this, the, the fascist demagogy and the right wing propaganda machine are very dangerous and they they do give um, the conservative movement uh, the advantages of unity and uh, quick coordination. You know, you just have these ideologues like Chris Rufo. they They come up with a new talking point. There's a new goal. We're going to do transgenocide, we're going to get rid of all these people, and then that becomes the legislative agenda in like 25 states. But I think it also gives them the disadvantage of not being able to behave tactically with respect to public opinion. All these people are convinced that, that, that the, the majority is with them, if, they're, if they ever lose an election, it's because of some sort of fraud. And so they overreach themselves. Like with the uh, Dobbs, you know, I don't I don't think you have Democrats doing so well in the 2022 midterms without the Dobbs decision, which is horribly unpopular. That's a that's that decision is like 10, 20 points underwater, depending on the poll that you see. And then it's created a huge uh, public relations problem for Republicans, because every couple of days there's a new story coming from Texas or Florida or someplace. About a woman who needed an abortion to live and almost died because the doctor was too afraid, uh, you know, to like get rid of some, you know, fetus with a uh, the, with a terrible deformity or something that was going to die anyways. Um, and so I think this it, it provides an opportunity, you know, in so far as that Republicans can't help themselves. They 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 are wedded to an incredibly unpopular and extremist agenda that the majority of Americans reject out of hand, and so the question is just like, uh, you know, le- uh, mobilizing that silent majority, as it were, uh, but, you know, this, this time in a good way.
0: Right. Well, Ryan Cooper, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. We're going to take a pre-station break, back looking into how it is time for Trump and Carrie Lake and others who are inciting violence to be held to account for the consequences. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy
2: that